what conditions are stipulations. All right, welcome to a legal matter if you are listening with your ear holes, and welcome to my face if you're not, or if you're using your eyeballs as well. So, this last week, it is the end of January of 2022, so uh, Justice Breyer is retiring from the Supreme Court, buried the lead. Um, this is a new, probably a harbinger of a new trend, so we'll say this much. Supreme Court appointees for the U.S. Supreme Court have lifetime terms if they want them. If they want to stay on until they take their last breath, that is allowed by the Constitution, Article 3. But they're not required to, because that would be insane. Um, They can retire, and many, many before Justice Breyer have chosen to do that. But what is different this time is that he is choosing to do so in a very, very strategic way, in a political way, and in a way that seems to respond to a lot of vitriol that was directed at the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, for not foreseeing her own death and not foreseeing the election of Donald Trump and failing to leave her job in time. Also not foreseeing the uh, the stonewalling from Republicans, which, you know, you can certainly make an argument that is not crazy, that you should have foreseen the fact that Republicans are going to stonewall because they've done it at least once before and they're only getting worse. <laughs> um, but uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I don't know if I'm ready to expect all my jurists and leaders to assume the worst of all of us. I don't know. I don't know. It's tricky. Suffice to say, I think a lot of that vitriol is misplaced, and we'll get to that, but be that as it may, it is there, and it certainly is something that Justice Stephen Breyer knew about, knows about. He's hip to that noise, and it seems very likely that that dictated, in part at least, his decision to step down. He is in his 80s, which these days especially, it is uncommon for Supreme Court justices to be on that older end. We'll get to that as well. (laughs) I guess there is a morbid but not incorrect expectation that those people are closer to death, so people, seeing that we now have a Democratic majority in the Senate, but a tenuous one, and a Democrat in the White House, knowing that those might swing, knowing that the balance of the court is already not leaning in a pro-civil rights, pro-human, pro-social rights, social justice, liberal issues direction. It is a conservative court right now, um, mostly due to legislator misconduct. But if we lost a liberal justice, and Justice Breyer was traditionally seen as a liberal, and was, you know, if we are aligning party delineators on stances, yeah, that's where he falls. Um... We only had three, only have had only three of them. So we already, on those of us on the left of the aisle, are in a losing position as of really this composition came about only within recent years. It used to be um, probably the opposite. 
certainly more will-they-won't-they, middle-of-the-road type jurists, which makes more sense for the Supreme Court in any other era but the literal current one. As the branches of government go, the judicial branch, and especially the U.S. Supreme Court, tends to be one of the more consistent, one of the more like self-modulated, educated, respectful institutions. And that obviously is not due to a perfect depoliticization, even at its best, but it it's, I think, a credit to the effort to keep politics out of the Supreme Court and a mission written into the Constitution to do the same. So again, obviously, always relative when you get politics involved in the other branches, which have to appoint and approve, um, respectively, with the executive and legislative, there's going to be politics. Uh, And when you're dealing with rulings on issues that are at least inextricably linked to political issues, you know, law and policy are like this. That's why I talk about both. (laughs) Um, So there's always going to be an undercurrent of politics. You cannot remove that. But I think for many years or for many periods within our nation's history, the court did a relatively good job, as institutions are concerned, of being a more measured, less risky, an institution you could count on and that did, you know, consider human beings and also consider the import of their decisions. And part of that is because they were not beholden to an electorate. Um, There is a real concern and pull on officials who have to consider re-election and have to consider uh, the folks who hired them in a different way. The risk of not having that in something like the Supreme Court is you got to have a lot of integrity and you got to be really smart, really considerate, bright, measured human beings if you are going to hold a role like that. So the selection process in and of itself, which is the inherently political part, becomes key. Because who are we picking? Why are we picking them? Um, Why are we not picking the ones that we don't pick? Etc, etc. So that will get us into our saga. The way that I'm going to frame this, there's certainly a trackable change with the nomination by President Ronald Reagan appointed Robert Bork to the Supreme Court in 1987. And You may have heard the name Robert Bork before. I would certainly encourage you to look him up if you're listening to this, because he is, he looks like more fun a character than his record will suggest, you'll see. But he's a a kooky looking guy. Um, But his nomination was controversial from the beginning. And so we'll go through that. You may have heard his name used as a verb, because it is one now. Uh, It's become a word that the right likes to use as synonymous with defamation and defiling somebody's character on the public stage and stripping them of something that they're entitled to, which, of course, even if I were on Bork's side, the fact is that any nominee to the Supreme Court is essentially interviewing for a job, a job that will be granted or not granted to them by the Senate, pursuant to uh, Article One, Section 2, Advise and Consent Duty, that the Senate has over nominees. So nobody is entitled to a spot on the Supreme Court. And this will come up again and again in this politicized era, I think most significantly with Kavanaugh, that nobody who is nominated 
or otherwise, of course, but nobody is entitled to get the seat that they're nominated to. The whole point of advise and consent is that the group that is basically their potential bosses in strictly the hiring sense can decide that they're not fit. And they can decide that because they're too partisan or they're too much of a loose cannon or they're unqualified or there are questionable things in their past. A lot of things will be ringing bells with the more recent appointees who did make it through. And that proves the point that things have changed in the years since Robert Bork. So Robert Bork, why is he seen as so political? Or why was he by at least the liberals and some of the conservatives in the Senate? Well, first thing is that Robert Bork was instrumental in what was called the Saturday Night Massacre in the Nixon administration, which was a piece of the Watergate scandal where Nixon's attorney general fired all these judges on a Saturday night who he knew would not agree, wouldn't make decisions that were sympathetic to him and his administration, and would face cases that had to do with him. So like anybody who didn't follow Nixon's orders uh, was fired. And anybody who could be, because there are certain that are under the executive branch, certain that aren't. Anyways, Robert Bork was instrumental in the pro-Nixon, anti-justice, um, in many's opinions, uh, Saturday Night Massacre. But that obviously is a, a pretty partisan use of the judiciary. So that was his, his earliest significant record on the national political scene. Later, as a jurist, and I, I believe he was a federal judge before uh, being nominated to the highest federal court, which is the, the U.S. Supreme Court, his record was very public. He was not afraid to speak his mind, and it was, well, you'll see, it certainly had a political direction to it. He was publicly against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, he was anti-contraceptive rulings that the Supreme Court prior to that point, had ruled in favor of protecting access. So there are these two cases, Eisenstadt and Griswold, that I've likely mentioned in reproductive rights settings before. And they were both decided in favor of contraceptive access, ended up paving the way for Roe v. Wade, etc. And Bork was openly, aggressively critical of those rulings. And his reasoning for that was that there is no right to privacy in the Constitution. And that's really what a lot of those cases hinge on. Not to go too far down that tangent, because you can watch and listen to some more in-depth nonsense on that that I definitely have covered in the past. But um, the inherent right to privacy that is recognized in the Constitution and acknowledged in those holdings is what a lot of it hinges on. So... There is no, like, amendment that says there's a right to privacy, but as they put it in the Griswold case, which is one of the two contraceptive cases that Bort criticized, there are these kind of penumbras, which is shadows, umbrellas, that are created by the rights guaranteed in other amendments that definitely guarantee, under that breadth, the right to privacy, which would be a very amorphous thing to protect anyways, which explains why... You know, they don't put the right to breathe and the right to poop in peace in the Constitution. There's a lot of stuff that they don't expressly say, because if you list everything, this is a real federalist, anti-federalist dispute back in the day, but if you list everything, you're, you're guaranteed to miss a few, 
And the very exclusion of them in your all-inclusive list will be proof that they're not supposed to be included. And they didn't want that. So they didn't enumerate everything. But what we do have, piecing together the other amendments, is a really, really convincing, if not dispositive, case for the protection of the right to privacy being intended within the Constitution as guaranteed to our citizens. You have the First Amendment right to assemble and express yourself. You have the third protection against having to quarter soldiers in your home, uh, the fourth against search and seizure, which is privacy of person and property without good cause. You can't be traipsing into somebody's bedroom or, you know, stripping them down. These are a lot of related things to healthcare and intimate choices regarding sexual activity, etc. Um, the Fifth Amendment's right against self-incrimination. And then you have the Ninth Amendment, which is kind of this catch-all amendment, which essentially says something very similar to what I said about the enumeration, non-enumeration, why we shouldn't list everything, which is that you should not construe any of the existing amendments to deny any other rights that have not been listed. So it's this catch-all for any rights that haven't been listed, but should be protected and intuitively would be protected. So if that doesn't cover privacy, especially with the other values that are covered in the other amendments, it, it, it's got to mean nothing, because what would it cover? Um, the Ninth Amendment would mean nothing. So that was the reasoning for the right to privacy, which is worth this little Bork-related tangent, um, because Robert Bork said he, he wasn't convinced. He said there is no right to privacy in the Constitution. And uh, on top of that, we don't like the substantive protection for women's health, reproductive freedom for men and women, in addition to not liking the civil rights protections of the 1964 bill, etc. Cetera, et cetera. He's an awesome guy. Not only is he super political, but he's a real douche. <laughs> so, uh, oh, he also, if you're familiar with the, the school of thought called original intent, We'll put that in heavy, heavy quotation marks. Uh, he was its originator, um, which is kind of funny, right? Like, note the timing that we are talking about a legal scholar, so to speak, in the mid-20th century. But um, suffice to say of original intent, there is no evidence that the founders wanted their intent used as an instrument for permanent interpretation of the documents. It's quite unreliable in terms of what sources you refer to and what that would mean on technologies and realities and attitudes that are so far from colonial America. I will refer to my dear dead dad for a summary of the school of thought, which again derived with Robert Bork in the mid 20th century. Constitutional interpretation justified by certain preferences of its enactors is variously labeled original intent, original understanding, or original meaning, depending, in part, on the optimism, credulity, or political preference of the observer. It's not a reliable tool, and it really is just as political in its cherry-picking of sources to use original intent. So, now you know Robert Bork. He's nominated by Reagan to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court in 1987, and this, at the time, <laughs> was way too political. It was an unprecedented move, and it caused an uproar. Um, he ended up losing by the largest loss margin in history, and I think that still is true, 
I think he lost 58 to 42. So 58 voted against him, 42 voted for. So obviously you have some people crossing over the political line there too, which is impressive. It's telling when you look at the politicization of nominees today and whether that is enough to sway folks across the aisle or cause an uproar. So even though Bork didn't make it onto the Supreme Court and ultimately everybody or the majority of the senators and thus influenced by the American public, enough of them were on the same page that regardless of what party you're, you're touting, this is too much for the Supreme Court. That compared to how politicized current era nominees have been and how disinclined people have been to cross against their party to vote against that, that piece is telling. So we didn't have a Justice Bork on the Supreme Court, which I tend to think is a good thing. Um, but of course, the right did not go easy into that good night, and Bork's name became a rallying cry and a synonym for defamed and fallen leaders. I don't know, but because how can you even say defamed when they literally are just citing his own writings and things that he has openly claimed as his views. It's not like he was hiding the fact that he was against the Civil Rights Act. He had written about it publicly as a legal scholar. So um, I'm not really sure where defamation came from in that argument, but that is what they say. Um, even though that nomination failed, it certainly acted as the first uh, turning point, the first brick in the wall, to mix my metaphors. And it reflected, I think, very poorly on not only Bork specifically in his own views, but the bounds of the president's role in picking who should be on the court. Reagan didn't really have the experience to know that, um, so didn't really know the bounds of the president's role. And boy, look at the damage that he has done, if you happen to land on the side of the aisle that I do, looking at the track record since Reagan and since Bork. So it reflected on the president as well. It certainly reflected on and had an impact going forward on the objectivity and the dignity of the court and the duty that it has to the people. Because without that, the constitutional interpretation duty that, you know, comes from Article 3, Judicial Review, Marbury versus Madison, all that stuff that, like, we're, we're interpreting laws in this court to see if they comply with the Constitution without at least an effort, a really good faith effort at a political consistent interpretation, you really just have a kangaroo court that is as political as whoever is in office at the time the majority was appointed. So it reflects very poorly on the court, and that trickles down to everybody subject to the court's rulings, because then none of us trust. If you don't trust the laws, it, it, you, the fabric of society is at risk. Not to overplay this, but um, it also certainly impacted the tribalism in the Senate, party line advise and consent stuff in Article 1 and how that has played out since then. So just to underscore this and compare it to pre-Bork and post-Bork current era, I think it's useful to look at votes and approval stats in early 1900 through the 1980s. The presidents were trying to choose nominees who strove to be neutral, were open to different interpretations, were bright jurists, and were sincerely trying to do what would be respected. And this, of course, increased the clout of the court as well. But if you look at the percentages of approval, non-approval votes 
through the 80s, you can see such a difference. So Justice Black, for example, was 63 to 16, was his approval margin. Justice Stone, 71 to 6. And the reason that you get some different numbers here is because sometimes people abstain or they're not there, um, which is in, its, in and of itself an acknowledgement that, like, their vote isn't needed or whatever, which you never would have now. Um, Justice Blackman was 94 to 0. Sandra Day O'Connor was 99 to 0. And then compare that to the most recent appointee who was approved, which was Amy Coney Barrett, and she was 52 to 48. So it really did not used to be along party lines and didn't really have to be. It was, you know, we're looking at well-qualified, truly attempting to be neutral judicial candidates before. And now, post-Bork, you don't have that anymore, nor do the parties in the Senate play accordingly. So let's talk about since Bork, from Bork to Breyer. We'll go from to in that range. We'll look at all the folks that you will be familiar with from the last... 20-odd, 30-odd years. If we stick to the wall brick metaphor, you get a lot of banner bricks, like let's say those memorial ones that you can buy at the zoo so that people like know your dead person exists. You got a lot of memorial bricks in that span from 1987 to 2015-ish in politicizing the highest court. Most of those come in the form of, one, hearings, like approval, disapproval, nomination hearings for appointees. Uh, you had Clarence Thomas in 1991, which was messy, messy, messy. I'm sure a lot of you know about that. It was messy, really, on both sides, but he was a Republican nominee by George H.W. Bush. He was credibly accused by another attorney, Anita Hill, of workplace sexual harassment, verging on sexual abuse, I would say very inappropriate behavior, certainly not judicial highest court behavior, a story for another day, but that was certainly very partisan. But you also had Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 90... I forget. But I think her her nomination hearing is such an interesting one because it show it's like a snapshot of mid-shift because on the one hand, she was approved 96 to 3. That is pre-Bork level, like, both sides recognize that this is a qualified person, that she is really bright, she's best of the best, she's trying her best to stay neutral and judicial all the time, um, which is also telling in terms of the reputation that she got later on, because, I mean, you would think that this was a firebrand asshole uh, with some sort of agenda, but at the time, people pretty universally recognized that she was a qualified and neutral person to hold the position. Also, the questions that they asked her were an interesting snapshot of the move towards more politicized. I mean, she was famous for paving the way for women and marginalized communities, so it was no secret in that sense, uh, which is arguably more political, but especially when it comes to identity issues, what jurist is not personally aligned somewhere. Like, who doesn't have an opinion on something that affects their literal body and ability to work? Um, but that said, it was an open secret that she was, you know, one of the first women in all her school classes, at, in law school and undergrad, that she had faced barriers to practice as a woman, and thus had formed opinions as a lawyer on women's rights issues. So she was actually asked about the Roe v. Wade holding in the Senate confirmation hearings, 
and she answered candidly that she was pro the holding. She she did talk about some differences that she had in the reasoning, which were just, you know, she was very frank. And given that it was settled precedent, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that that was a disqualifying sort of opinion to have, that you agree with uh, settled precedent, but um, they did bring it up. Now, nominees tend to not answer because they're like, I don't know if that's going to come before the court. I do like that I guess there's some sort of illusion of not being political. I don't like that they won't tell us. Um, I feel like maybe people have just learned to not say stuff out loud in the way that Bork did. And then when they're asked point blank about what radical ideas they may have now, they're like, I can't answer that. Um, you heard a lot of that in the nominations in recent years. Um, the other thing that creates a lot of these bricks in the wall uh, holdings, obviously. Uh, so many holdings, uh, which is like rulings, the decisions that come out of the court in the last, in the post-Bork period from 1987. Obviously, a lot of them have affected a lot of social policy, um, public policy, all sorts of issues. But the ones that I think are really instrumental are the ones in which a court that is very partisan has overturned settled precedent, which you're not supposed to do. You're supposed to be bound by what previous courts did unless, and there are like these little checkpoints that you are supposed to have to show have been met before you overturn it. It's things like, um, is it unworkable? Are courts having trouble applying this standard? Have the facts changed? You know, has medical science or something advanced to show that this is no longer true or workable? Um, has society changed so much that this is no longer... A, a good example of that one is the the Brown versus Board anti-segregation decision that overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which was a separate but equal is okay. Um, but in that one, the societal progress was a huge factor that um, norms had really changed in a way that you could even substantiate with statistics that, you know, this is no longer something that everybody believes. We have progressed and we've moved towards justice, and that is something that the founders encouraged, in fact, so... Great. But you do have these little check marks that you have to meet before overturning something like Roe v. Wade, for example. And there is no reason that something like that should be overturned. But in a lot of cases with more politicized courts, these newer nominees are much more eager to just throw them out because they don't align. And I guarantee if you do see Roe and Casey overturned, they will not meet. I mean, because those standards can't be met. There is no new medical science. There's no societal shift against abortion, even though their news media might suggest it. There is no statistical difference, if anything, the opposite. So that that also undermines faith in the court, right? Because if its own justices aren't even obeying their own precedent, they're just doing their own. They're just up there preaching their own thing. Um, they're dictating. <laughs> the law of the land without any guidance from decision or, or law. Um, like, don't you, you know, if you're going to fuck us over, don't pretend that you're doing it in the guise of law. Do us the favor of just saying, I want to do this because I want to do this. Anyways, yeah, so there's the overturning precedent, and then a lot of cases that I think tread on the political question doctrine, which is this standard that is applied to all courts that they are not supposed to touch voting political issues, they're not supposed to be allowed to hear questions that are better handled elsewhere. 
So an example of that is, say, the Constitution assigned that type of determination elsewhere. So, you know, this is a law that Congress should pass and powers are delegated to them over taxing issues. So the court's not going to make that decision because it's something that the Constitution is delegated to a different branch. Um, Or there's no manageable standard to apply. So moral issues... um, This is why they're always trying to find something in the Constitution, like a right to privacy or a right to free speech, to underscore it. Because they can't just use politics or morals as a reason to decide something a certain way. That's not a manageable standard. So if that's what you're deciding on, theoretically, the court is not supposed to decide on these political questions. That's a political question doctrine. There are many cases in the last 20, 30 years that very compellingly would cross that line. Um, The first clearest example, I would say, is Bush v. Gore, in which the court willingly decided a presidential election against the popular vote, no less. That's pretty clearly a political issue. Obviously, there was more to it than that, but still. Um, Citizens United about campaign contributions and corporations being people, that was a very twisted way of saying the Constitution supports what we politically want to do. There was Shelby County overturning the Voting Rights Act, a couple gerrymandering cases like Whitford, but a lot of those things that impact voting, impact political issues, um, and impact whether the court wades into these battlefields, uh, again, mixing my metaphors, a lot of those have come up more recently, as they inevitably will, when you put political advocates, less modulated minds on what is supposed to be a neutral judicial body that is bound by precedent. So now let's get into most recent memory, AD, CE, end of Obama to Trump to now years. And my big gripes, that's my most professional uh, way of saying it, my gripes with how it has been framed, even on the left, um, over the last five years or so. So let's pull it all back together to what we're talking about, which is Justice Breyer stepping down and and why he has made that choice and why it's a somewhat unique one and a further marker of a kind of new era. So we're looking at the current court composition, right? And frankly, the other branches, the executive and legislative branches too. And we have a a 6-3 conservative court based on a lot of tempestuous, brave new world decisions. Um, When Scalia died in the Obama administration, the court was airing liberal, and it was a totally different landscape. So in that period, obviously, something, a lot of somethings have shifted, and suddenly we're looking at a conservative court, which will not change with Breyer stepping down. He was in the minority. It was him, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Uh, On the liberal side, Roberts sometimes will cross the line. Um, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh occasionally will for oftentimes non-social issues where their religion doesn't get in the way. Bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy sort of issues, they don't really flip too much. I've seen a lot, what I'm sure a lot of you have seen a lot, I mean, Breyer himself obviously is not unaware of this type of thing, is blame on RBG on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg for dying. Essentially, yes, I'm distilling it to an oversimplified version, but it's because there's no merit to blaming her. I've seen oftentimes uh, straight white men 
not always straight, not always white, but liberal, with so much vitriol for her not making the choice to retire while Obama was still in office because she died two months before the election, and thus we got a 6-3 court rather than a 5-4 court. But even without my personal feelings, that is certainly oversimplified. And to place blame on her alone, even in a vacuum, is not quite right. And boy, have we stripped this banner jurist of her legacy in doing so, which isn't my primary concern, but hot damn, holy fuck. It's so much more disappointing from the left, and we do eat our own so frequently, so if we can at least reduce the cannibalism to cases where it's like really morally merited, that would be great. So let's look at the justices and the turnover that we've had in that period of time. Merrick Garland, which was the first what the fuck. Um, maybe first what the fuck in a nomination post Robert Bork, uh, but this time it was a nominee from the other side. So Merrick Garland, the artist formerly known as nominee, currently known as Attorney General, which is awesome as a concept after he was stripped of a, of a hearing. Not even a vote, not even a seat, because you can, you're not entitled to the seat, but a hearing, which is a constitutional duty borne by the Senate, led at the time by Mitch McConnell. Um, so at the time, Obama was president. It was the beginning of 2016, February 2016, so early, early in that year, and Antonin Scalia died in his sleep uh, relatively unexpectedly, which does happen. I mean, it happens to 50-somethings, it happens to 80-somethings, it happens to a lot of people. Um, we had a Democratic president, but he was a lame duck president, which means that essentially he is fettered by the opposite party being in the legislative branch. So the majority Republican Senate, they're scared. They, they clearly were very scared because at the time it was a, I think it was a 5-4 court liberal. And John Roberts, he, being a relatively neutral measured figure, he's a swinger. He, he will, you know, he saved elements of Obamacare, and that's not what G.W. Bush signed up for. So the conservatives on the Senate and beyond were very nervous about the composition. Like, oh, how much would change, thanks to them in large part, but um, they're cheating. It's so different if you look at, like, this is less than 10 years ago. Um, with that fear in mind, Article 2 power to the president to appoint a nominee. Obama did so. He was the sitting president. He had roughly a year left as the sitting president, if you think about January as being the, the inauguration of the next. So he had about a year left in office, and he appointed Merrick Garland to the vacancy. Merrick Garland had a solid record, certainly nothing as partisan as, as Bork, for example. Um, good record as a jurist, really nothing to raise alarm bells at, but McConnell just, no. He, he stonewalled and rallied his troops to do the same, which, gotta hand it to the conservatives, they don't eat their own in the same way. But for whatever reason, nobody really broke ranks, and they just decided... No, we're not going to do it. They they all uniformly, on the right of the aisle, shirked their constitutional duty under Article 1. It's a violation of the Constitution, I don't know. And we just kind of, um, the fault that I would lay on the left, 
is that we all collectively, if you're looking at the Senate, if you're looking at the electorate, if we're, I don't, I don't really know what I wish people had done, but we really didn't do anything. And then Gorsuch was appointed after Trump won. Certainly, a, you know, a lifetime in between. Uh, oh, and, and I should note, there was no, no legal, historical, constitutional precedent for denying the hearing. Mitch McConnell's reason, speaking for the conservative side of the Senate, was that it was too close to an election. Now, keep in mind, this is eight months before November, and it is almost a year before the next president would assume office. So that is not only illogical. Um, what, are you taking out a whole year, essentially, of a four-year term in office to just not do your constitutional duty? There's nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing in precedent. There's nothing in historical writings, legal writings, anything to support that stance. It's just a weird look at the clock, and it's one that they deviated from pretty quickly once things swung back in their party's favor. But, um, yeah, I think, speaking for myself in terms of outlook, I was so shocked, and so I can only give the benefit to other members of my party that I was like, that it's like you're, you're being pickpocketed and you don't realize until the damage is done to react. Um, because then there was the 2016 election. I don't say much more about that, but a lot of things changed. Gorsuch was then appointed by Trump <laughs> promptly, who now gets another party, another president's vacancy. So Gorsuch himself is the first one who I think of as being not duly appointed because he it's kind of it's kind of like how China will appoint a Dalai Lama even though it's not the one chosen in Tibet and they have annexed Tibet but they're just going to like pretend that we're playing by the same rules under the same system and we're like yeah no this is this is the Dalai Lama the, the, the yeah for Tibet um like don't call it that cuz it's not that so Gorsuch is the first one who I have a real question about, and this says nothing of his character or his, his jurisprudential history. In fact, I'm sure he hates that in some way, that he came to his seat like nobody else before him and threw a constitutional violation by his own party in the Senate. So whatever, he, he made it through because there were enough votes in the Senate, and I guess there certainly is no recourse for when half of the country decides they're not going to play ball, uh, except civil war, I guess. And we, I guess we kind of thought it was a one-off. Just like so many times since we've been like, oh, that's nuts. What the, well, we've made it this far as a country. I mean, again, hindsight is twenty twenty. Nobody expects speedy escalation to a, an insurrection just because Trump was the worst. Like, I... I thought nothing positive of him, but I never would have expected it went the way it would, you know. But um, it is important to remember that this is the first unjust element of the current court composition. And when you look at how swiftly everything has shifted, it's, it's worth keeping in mind. Um, you know, next one is Kavanaugh. So that one also came to be under very suspicious, maybe not legal circumstances. There's a lot of questions about why Anthony Kennedy, who... It's weird, because he was usually one of those neutral kind of conservatives, but would swing in terms of ideological votes, but ultimately his loyalties lay 
beyond social ideology. And there's some questions about like his alliances with the Trump family and some financial um, vestments with mutual interests and meeting with Trump and essentially agreeing to do what Breyer is doing now for the liberal side on the conservative side. Like, let me get out of your way so that you can appoint like a baby to hold down the conservative fort on the court for the next generation or so. Um, which is, it, it's too bad. It's a hell of a way to end an otherwise reasonable legacy. And he has certainly nullified anything somewhat neutral and reasonable that I used to think of him. And his replacement was also far from that ideology. So it makes you wonder if he had any ideology at all. Um, he stepped down in the Trump administration and Brett Kavanaugh was appointed. Um, noted sex criminal Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> uh, it's too much to get into the specifics of that one. I'm sure anybody who is aware of that was aware of that. Uh, you can certainly look it up if you're not. It's bad. It's really bad. Um, it's, it smacks of the Anita Hill sort of thing. Awesome that we've come so far and we would be remiss not to shout out the original sex criminal on the bench still, Clarence Thomas. Um, but beyond the not only criminal but like bad, violent, gendered criminal element that was endorsed not only by him and his actions but and Trump, shockingly, but also the whole party and anybody who decided to die on that hill. No, Anita Hill, pun intended. Uh, and it really wasn't a death on the hill, because who's laughing now, I guess. But beyond the substance of it, there was also his vitriol in the hearing. I mean, he was yelling, he was angry, he was crying, he was talking about how much he liked beer. And if you think of this, again, as a job interview, before the people who have the power to either grant or take away, even though, again, with politics, you don't really have that kind of neutrality anymore, this is a job interview that he is yelling and crying and being defensive. He, can you imagine in any other circumstance displaying that kind of behavior and being endorsed by the people who have the power to give or take this, this potential job? Um, I mean, people were talking about freedom of speech and all this due process nonsense. This is the process. And the outcome potential of the process is that they don't give you the job that you're interviewing for. Um, they did. So shout out to Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Jeff Flake of Arizona, uh, who tended to be the more reasonable, professedly reasonable, and their voting records relatively more willing to pander to the liberal votes in their districts, whatever. Uh, they all voted for Brett Kavanaugh. There are also some questions now about the FBI investigation, because this also was a very rushed hearing. I think McConnell and his ilk and his party are very nervous about anything happening before they work their witchcraft. Oh, that's too kind. In any case, they pushed the hearing through very quickly. The FBI, A, did not have great adequate time to investigate the claims, the very serious claims from multiple women. I mean, we only heard from one in testimony, but it was not an isolated incident. Um, all of them credible. Hers certainly, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, certainly credible. Um, but the FBI did not have great 
amount of time to look into it. Also did not interview the victims, and that was their own choice. Um, when senators asked them to do their job and assist in the investigation, they told the senators that they did not have the authority to do so, even though they've they've done so in the past. There's also a question, relatedly, about whether the Trump administration pressured them as an executive agency, which is what the FBI technically is. Um, so they're always torn. I mean, James Comey was also FBI-related, right? So you've got the, like, are we loyal to the executive? Are we loyal to reason and our jobs and the people? Um, there is that dichotomy there, and there are some credible questions about who they went with in this case. And there was plausible deniability because the hearing did happen so fast. You know, conservatives had Republicans. I keep saying conservative liberal. Republicans had control of the Senate. Um, so they got to schedule everything. Like there really was no check on that process. So they didn't have time and they were influenced. There wasn't a great investigation into Kavanaugh. But even with what we had, which was not nothing, he scooted his way in there. It's working out at Tubin's. Then, of course, and this is still a, a, a raw, raw nerve, especially in how uh, Ginsburg has been treated in the wake of her death, uh, the gall. Amy Coney Barrett is the most recent appointee and the timing of everything there. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg died late September, two months less than two months prior to the election, the 2020 election. Uh, so if we're going by the arguments made by Mitch McConnell and his little cronies not five years earlier, we're not having a hearing? Eight months was not enough time. Then one and change, certainly not enough time, right? Well, no. Um, shockingly, they've, they've changed their tune it's almost like they're not bound to morality or consistency or anything but what they want, um, which is always in the interest of the public good. So they pushed that hearing through as well. Uh, also, that was whatever the opposite of a lame duck is. We had a Republican president and a Republican majority, which is terrifying, and we might face it again if we don't stop eating each other. Uh, not only did RVG die somewhat unexpectedly, you know, I, I was shocked. I, she's somebody who had been ill repeatedly, but because it had never taken her down, it was like she was ironclad. It, I, it, obviously not immortal, but holy fuck. You think somebody almost can, like, will death away when they have that sort of uh, stre strength? And for the fallout to be what it was... Um, what a disservice on either side if you have respect for the office. And remember, this is somebody who was appointed 96 to 4 or something. Um, so not a partisan nominee. Uh, but boy, has she been tarnished. Her dying wish also, like, if we, <laughs> if we have any scrap of humanity left, was for the next president elected duly in virtually the next month's election to appoint her successor, which doesn't even guarantee a party. It's just next president, which could have been Trump. So she wasn't even being partisan in that request, but we're just going to throw that out the window. Because um, even McConnell didn't have faith, I guess, that Trump was going to win. Let's push Amy Coney Barrett 
through, traitor to her gender, um, and, oh god, to call her ACB just makes me want to vomit, because it's just such a snub, it's such a fucking smear. Um, the hearings and final vote were all done a month later, which also undercuts the whole, oh, eight months isn't enough for the process. Uh, you got it done when you wanted to get it done. And uh, less than two weeks before the presidential election, which kind of weighs in both ways. In that case, I actually, even if you take parties away from it, I could see the we don't have enough time, despite no precedent, um, argument holding some water. She was approved 52 to 48, so compare that to some of the pre-Bork approval votes. Um, extremely partisan, you know, 11th hour questions about who's going to vote what way. I, I would refer anybody who is interested, and even those who are like on the fence about being interested, to the Exceedingly Persuasive episode 34, where we go into RBG's record and really what she did, because I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut against myself by not delineating everything here and, and going through the list, but people don't know and or have forgotten what she did, not only for women in a huge, huge way. Like, we couldn't hold credit cards, we couldn't go to law school, we couldn't, um, you know, get family leave or unemployment or death benefits or get admission to certain schools. So on a gender front alone, especially as a lawyer, come on. Uh, but also, you know, racial equity, voting rights, uh, healthcare access, prison reform, like everything that people care about, LGBTQIA shit, she is on the front lines aggressively even when it's dissents that she's writing that will be used, hopefully, if morality ever wins, but in the way that sometimes, you know, future courts, once shit has gone in, in the arc of moral justice, can refer to and be like, actually, this was good legal reasoning, and she found a way to support it in a sustainable way, in a way that's like baby steps, but strong scaffolding. So please listen to Exceedingly Persuasive's episode 34, uh, after her death that goes through. She's an amazing person, and I, these Twitter talking heads don't know and don't care, because I won't even give them the credit of knowing what they're talking about, but they're certainly dismissive of somebody who paved the way for a marginalized group, if not many, and I don't think people would have talked about Thurgood Marshall in the same way if he had died prematurely, um, had the gall to die. Uh, in a way that was inconvenient. And it certainly was. I mean, it sucks, I guess. It sucks that my dad died early. I don't blame him for it. You should have waited. You should have squeezed harder. And in that vein, let's talk about the top 10 oldest justices, because age is a tricky thing. I do understand that a lot of people's familiarity with old people, especially old people in politics, is not, uh, not lending a favorable view. I get that. It's not without merit. Um, but I urge you, especially when you're thinking about the court in its best form, which has existed, and has gotten us to a very solid foundation on a lot of rights, because if, if the court is saying that it's in the Constitution, it's really hard to take it away. You know, a, a new senator can't fuck with that, um, if we have a good court. But, 
so try to reframe it at least for ideal, best case scenario, but achievable court circumstances as if it's like the nicest, most level, well-lived old person that you know. So if you have a grandma that you're close to or, you know, a wise old person who you see at the party, somebody who really has done what they're supposed to with their time here and has thus become somebody with the most time to evolve. Uh, that's what we're looking at. It's Otherwise, it's certainly ageist, for one thing. Um, but if you look at the positive rather than the negative stereotypes of what an older professional can be in a field, it's more measured, it's the utmost experience, utmost education, it's usually reasonable and compassionate, so it's it's really not the worst thing. Plus, you don't have the election thing. So it, it's not so easy as, like, let's eliminate and let's change XYZ. But in the top ten oldest justices of all time, you have Thurgood Marshall, first black justice, and RBG. You also have Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is a foundational legal scholar. He's, like, the most cited in jurisprudence. He was... Uh, very pro-free speech, pro-economic regulation in a very pivotal period. He changed the direction of legal protections for people. Um, Justice Brennan, no relation, unless you want to think there is one, unless you want to give me a job, uh, who was very pro-press freedom, anti-death penalty, pro-choice, was a huge, you know, a towering figure on the court who made a lot of difference. Uh, Justice Blackman, who was a Republican appointed by Nixon, so expected to give that kind of legacy, but flipped while he was on the court and ended up writing the decision in Roe v. Wade. So that should give you an example of what the best old justices are in practice. So temper the push to have people retire and see the possibility, and even if that means it never happens again, it should at least change the retrospective arguments about RBG and her ilk, that maybe there shouldn't necessarily be an obligation to step down as a rule. Now, in this current climate, I don't know, because nobody knows, because what the hell, but... Um, there have been a lot of other bias questions in the last... Uh, in that interim period between late Obama to now. Uh, there was the whole thing about the Federalist Society, which is an openly conservative, uh, like, lobbying group that would give Trump a list of approved appointees as a partisan group. And that has never happened. That's insane. That's openly political. When you think about where we were talking about Bork and, like, oh, my God, he openly opposed the civil rights bill once um, to... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they hate gays. They hate abortion. They hate the blacks. They hate, uh, you know, Jews if they're not assimilated. They hate disabled people. They hate LGBTQIA. They, they openly hate everyone in the name of federalism, but they are going to give a list of appointees to the president and he will pick from that. And that's how we get in the door. Um, it's fucking political. It's crazy political and exponentially so. Um, Clarence Thomas's wife, I mean, partners are always a tricky thing, but Clarence Thomas's wife, which he certainly is not without question to begin with, which puts him in a different league, but his wife is like a, a conservative activist who now the latest thing is that maybe she 
her group had something to do with funding people who were involved in the insurrection. Um, that's tricky. Uh, nobody's their brother's keeper, so to speak, but yikes, that's influence for sure. Like, he's, he's pillow talk, baby. I don't know. Plus he sucks already. So damn. Um, and then the fact that we're, we're really airing younger with the nominees that a lot of them are, are in their forties now, which is a long stint. I mean, I, the court we're looking at now, unless something crazy happens and we start challenging things like Gorsuch, um, and taking sex criminals off the, the bench, which doesn't really sound crazy in a vacuum, but it would take a lot. Um, this, barring that, this will be the court for my adult life. Um, they're just crazy and scary and will change a lot. But, so those are the other things that have shifted drastically and quickly. Um, before we move totally off of RBG, just quick summary. We expected her, her in this logic to foresee her death foresee Trump's election, which none of us did. Um, I mean, these are unprecedented times, truly, even post-Garland. Um, and then if we're going with that, any one of them, just because she's the one who died, you know, why didn't Breyer retire then? Because they were both in their 80s. I don't endorse forcing anybody in an ageist way to step down, especially if they're doing a good job and on my side. Um, but why didn't he face the same pressure post-death just because she was the one who actually did die? Um, and again, would we have made the same argument with Thurgood Marshall, who was a very influential black jurist, if he had had the gall to die on the bench? I don't think so. Um, such disregard and vitriol for somebody who was overwhelmingly positive is is now reduced to the consequences of their death. Um, and I, it bears mentioning that those who are making the argument the loudest are a lot of bullying type male liberals. It's, it's the exact stereotype of Bernie bros. They are often not people who are well versed in the law or impacted by the progress that she did make. Um, and certainly not eager to point the gun anywhere else, which draws a question about sexism even inherent in the fact of the criticism. Okay, so Breyer. <laughs> Breyer, Justice Stephen Breyer, very personable person. He's been pretty public as Supreme Court justices go over his tenure. Um, one of the biggest issues he's been a champion for while on the bench, although he's been, you know, very strong liberal pro-social protections voting record. Um, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He's a good judge, uh, if you ask me and people who align with me. Um, but one of his biggest issues that he has been an advocate for is criminal justice reform. He is openly anti-death penalty against solitary confinement, uh, different issues, you know, affecting sentencing equity. Um, he's been very critical of mass incarceration and things like that. So that's been his big thing. His other, he's always on the right side with <laughs> racial equity, voting access. Uh, he's pro-gun control, pro-choice, pro-gay marriage and everything out from there. 
the tactic coming home to the current is I I might die, I guess, because I'm 80-something, um, and acknowledging the polarity and uncertainty that we have seen in action enough to deny its existence now. He's doing this squarely in the middle of the presidential term, and while the Senate majority is Democratic, and that is certainly very tenuous, I have been very disappointed by Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, but Kirsten Cinema is my home state, so obviously it ain't over till it's over, god damn it. Uh, what's next? There are a couple potential nominees who've been floated. I, I don't know enough about any of them independently, so I'll wait till we know who it actually is to go in depth, but we do know that it will be a black woman. It'd be really cool if it was Anita Hill, but it won't be. It'd be so cool. Oh my god, can you imagine? Um, and they, they have renewed their promise since the decision by Breyer to step down that it will be a black woman on the court, which is awesome. I mean, that's the part. I'm not mad that he's stepping down because there is a great positive that comes from it. But this whole conversation is about lending some insight before we get off the topic. An insight that's due on how we're framing this conversation and, and let's really place it, blame where it should be if we're going to look at this track record and moving forward. Regardless, the appointee will not, even if everything goes right and they're approved, it won't change the composition of the court ideologically, unfortunately, but it should solidify it. I don't know, maybe they'll appoint like a 20-year-old. I don't know how Biden's going to deal with it age-wise, but it seems like they're more going by qualification, which is awesome, but it may be obsolete because Republicans are half of representation and they suck. I'm just on a soapbox. I'm very tired. Very tired. Are you tired? I don't know. I don't know what this means for the future. That's my last section is like, what's next? Um, we'll have a vote. God willing. There's the conversation that really I don't want to... About the filibuster and court expansion. Quick summary. The only way that we change this very polarized, very questionably appointed, strong conservative majority is if we expand the court, which would require, if you've heard this train of thing, it would require a removal of the filibuster because as it is now, any person in the Senate, even if the votes are there, can block voting to change that by just like soapboxing it, and they will. So that is basically fettering the majority from making change. And those pivoting liberal senators like Kirsten Cinema have been openly opposed to getting rid of the filibuster, which is a relatively new thing anyway. So like, we know we can function without it, um, but it does make you question their liberal chops because they're preventing this positive change from happening. But that's why the two issues have been connected, and that would be the next step. Uh, FDR expanded the court. I, I don't tend to like messing with the fabric of things unless it's absolutely necessary because it makes shit too easy and, and it just takes being on the wrong side of a cataclysmic society for that to get fucked up again. But I do think that this... Look at where we are. Um, I'm not saying play dirty, but I'm saying play rough if we need to and we need to. Um, Stay tuned. Also, I make shirts now, and I have a website, and hit me up on there. It's mkzjoybrennan.com. 
And I am at MKZJoyBrendan on all the stuff. I think I'm gonna start making TikToks, so if you're... Help me out, guys. I don't know how to do this, but I'm gonna try starting to do it. So, talk to me if you have ideas or advice. And be good, be safe, be happy, as I say to my cats. Woo!